you probably have a mental picture of World War I. Trenches, mud, shell craters, barbed wire, no man's land. But I want you to set that aside for a moment and envision another scene. Think of a bar, an old bar, a beat up building where the tables are scratched and the smell of stale cigarette smoke hangs in the air. Tourists don't come here and it's not on Yelp. The patrons are tough. Yeah, everybody knows their name, but this ain't Shears. The bartender keeps his head down and a loaded shotgun behind the counter. This is the World Bar and Grill, and in 1914, it's where the greatest conflict the planet has ever known began. This is the year that was, 1919. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and I am so glad you're listening. So here's the thing. I didn't plan to talk about the start of the war at all. I thought we would dive right into 1919 with the war done and dusted. But the more I read about the Great War, the more I realized there was a lot I didn't know about how it began in the first place. And uniquely for World War I, it really mattered at the end of the war what you thought happened at the start of the war. Which brings us back to the really, frankly, outlandish idea of the World Bar and Grill. As I worked on this episode, I kept coming back to an awesome meme that pops up now and then online. It compares World War I to a bar fight. I have no idea who originally created this meme, but it's really fantastic. It's funny, but best of all, it accurately tells the story of the origins of the Great War. And that's why I decided to use that meme to help tell the story of World War I. Now, I do not want in any way to diminish the horror of the Great War. I'm adopting this frankly silly approach because I think it makes the story easier to understand. And at the end of the episode, we're going to get very serious about how ordinary soldiers experienced the war with the help of some World War I poetry. But in the meanwhile, we're going to look at the Great War as if each country was a guy sitting at a bar. I've found it a really useful analogy. So here we are at the World Bar late on a Saturday night. Spain is passed out in a corner. It's been a long couple of centuries. Ireland is complaining about the British, as usual. Earlier, the African countries asked if they could come in and sit down, and we're told their kind weren't welcome here. Here's how it begins. Germany, Austria, and Italy are standing together in the middle of a pub. That's my narrator for this episode, my husband, Chris McAdams. I would like to thank him for letting me drag him into this. Imagine the nations of Europe divided into two mutually hostile groups. In one corner, you have Germany, Austria, and Italy. They were joined together in a mutual defense alliance and were known as the Central Powers. In the other corner, you have Great Britain, France, and Russia. They were known as the Triple Entente. In future years, this group would generally become known as the Allies, and I will usually just call them that to simplify matters. These alliances generally, with some exceptions, operated on a foundation of mutual defense. Allies were obliged to come to the defense of allies. So war with France automatically meant war with Russia. War with Germany meant war with Austria-Hungary. 
All of these countries believed that war between them was inevitable, something that was bound to happen. Why would they think that? Because France and Germany had unfinished business. France had not forgiven Germany for its defeat in the 1870-1871 Franco-Prussian War. Meanwhile, Germany was convinced that the country was being encircled by enemy nations that would crush the Germans as soon as anybody got a chance. The tension between France and Germany was the most pressing problem on the continent, and you need to imagine them glaring at each other over their drinks. But other nations had their own conflicts. Germany resented Britain's sea power. Russia was annoyed by Austrian expansion into the Balkans, and so on. Look, this was a tough crowd. You didn't go to the World Bar for quiet conversation and a friendly game of checkers. Fights broke out all of the time and people had long memories. There was another reason that everyone considered conflict inevitable, and that's because people genuinely believed it would be good for Europe to have a nice, refreshing war. The attitude toward war before 1914 was very different than it is today. There is a generally accepted sense right now that war is bad. War should be avoided if at all possible. This is so obvious that it feels strange to say it out loud. Today, political leaders might push for war in certain circumstances, but no one is just pro-war in principle, just gung-ho, hey, let's have a war, it'll be awesome. The anti-war mindset is so widespread that it's difficult to appreciate that it is relatively new. But leading right up to the Great War, politicians, philosophers, writers, religious leaders all believed that war was a good thing. War was ennobling. It taught men, it was always men, courage and sacrifice. It was the ultimate expression of patriotism. It unified the public and erased national divisions. Too much peace was decadent. It made you soft. Wars were necessary to keep steel in the nation's soul. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, It is mere illusion and pretty sentiment to expect much, or anything at all, from mankind if it forgets how to make war. A French intellectual called war, one of the conditions of progress, the cut of the whip which prevents a country from going to sleep. It had been more than 40 years since Europe had had a good bang-up war, and people genuinely worried that their countries were suffering by staying so darn peaceful. 1914 seemed as good a time as any to fix that. Okay, back to our bar. Serbia walks by, bumps into Austria, and spills Austria's beer. Okay, so equating the vicious assassination of the heir to the Austrian throne with spilling Austria's beer is a little dismissive, but I'm going to let it stand because beers get spilled in bars when things get rowdy. It's something you have to expect. And the Balkans, of which Serbia was a part, were a rowdy corner of Europe in 1914. Bad things, including vicious assassinations, were something you had to expect there. Only 11 years earlier, assassins broke into the Serbian royal palace, found the king and queen cowering in a cupboard, and slaughtered them both. So, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary was a massive empire that controlled what is today not only 
Austria and Hungary, obviously, but also parts of Poland, Ukraine, Romania, and Italy. And all of today's Czech Republic, Croatia, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Bosnia-Herzegovina was a recent addition to the Austria-Hungarian Empire. It had been annexed from the Ottoman Empire in 1908. This is important because the seizure of Bosnia had infuriated the neighboring kingdom of Serbia. Serbia was a young country that had only achieved its independence from the Ottomans in 1867. Serbia was small, scrappy, and ambitious. In fact, the goal of Serbian nationalists was to reassemble the ancient Serbian state as it had last existed in 1389. They considered Bosnia-Herzegovina rightfully theirs. The situation was complicated by the Russians, who were closely allied with the Serbs. Russia and Serbia were both Slavic nations, and that really, really mattered. Slavs are an ethnic group that share similar languages and usually, although not always, practice Orthodox Christianity. So in our bar, you need to imagine Serbia as a young guy, kind of small, not very strong, but trying to run with the big guys. He hangs around Russia and always laughs the loudest at Russia's jokes. He's always getting offended by somebody else, and he expects Russia to back him in a fight. Now, Austria is a big dude, and he's feeling his age. He's not as tough as he used to be. He's got bad knees. He's sensitive about his bald spot and how slow he moves these days, and he really hates that Serbia guy for always antagonizing him. So the ultimate antagonizing act was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on June 28, 1914, in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina. They were shot by a young Serbian nationalist as part of a plot that had been ultimately sponsored by the Serbian state, although with enough distance to ensure plausible deniability. Franz Ferdinand was not targeted for any personal reason. The Serbians hated him simply because he represented the Austria-Hungarian Empire. So the beer has been spilled. What's next? Austria demands Serbia buy it a whole new suit because of the beer stains on its trouser leg. The Austria-Hungarian government was furious and immediately charged the Serbian government with sponsoring the assassination. Austria decided that only military conquest would avenge the empire's honor and wipe out the threat of Serbia forever. The whole honor thing is big here. It's not that the Austrians were particularly broken up over the death of Franz Ferdinand. He was not a popular figure and no one outside of his immediate family seemed to really even like him. But it was the principle of the thing. Those upstart Serbians had killed the Austrian heir. You can't let that stand any more than you can let jerks and bars deliberately spill your beer. Austria decided to issue an ultimatum to Serbia demanding all sorts of concessions. It was deliberately obnoxious and insulting. Austria never expected Serbia to go along with it and frankly hoped they would refuse. Then Austria would have all the excuse it needed to invade Serbia. Germany expresses its support for Austria's point of view. Before Austria sent the ultimatum to Serbia, it decided to make sure that Germany had its back. Remember, Austria's getting old, and it's not the fighter it used to be. 
Austria relied on the younger, stronger Germany to back it up if things got out of hand. So senior Austrian ministers asked senior German ministers if they would support Austria if Austria decided to take action against Serbia. The Germans said, sure, go for it. This moment has been known as the blank check. Germany gave Austria carte blanche to do whatever it wanted. So Austria went ahead and sent the ultimatum to Serbia. Britain recommends that everybody calm down a bit. It's at this moment that politicians in Europe really sat up and started to pay attention. It was looking really dicey all of a sudden. There were some frantic attempts to slow things down and give everyone a chance to cool off. Russia urged Austria to extend its deadline, and Britain offered to mediate the conflict. But Austria now felt that if it backed down, it would be perceived as weak and its empire would collapse. Serbia points out that it can't afford a whole suit offers to pay for the cleaning of Austria's trousers. Serbia's reaction to the ultimatum was an attempt at compromise. It gave in to the majority of Austrian requests, but offered alternatives to the most egregious demands. For a brief moment, everyone was relieved. It seemed like Serbia was giving Austria a chance to retain its honor without a war. But Austria was in no mood to give in. Austria refused to compromise. In the next big move, Austria mobilized its army. Mobilization is the act of ordering all your troops to prepare for war. It involves canceling all leave, calling up reserves, massing forces along borders, that sort of thing. In 1914, it was a big public act that generally served as a precursor to a declaration of war. It was hard to back down from mobilization. In response, Serbia mobilized its army but it also started glancing over its shoulder to big brother Russia. Russia stands up very, very slowly and stands directly behind Serbia. Russia and Serbia look at Austria. Austria asks Serbia who it's looking at. Russia suggests that Austria should leave its little brother alone. Look, Russia could have shut all this down. If our imaginary bar patron Russia had said out of the corner of his mouth, let it go, Serbia would have had to let it go. Real world Russia could have done the same. Serbia would have been pissed and might have yelled at Russia about it later, but the bigger fight would have been avoided. But Russia didn't want to look weak in front of the whole bar. What if no one was afraid of him anymore? Russia had lost a few fights recently, including a big one against Japan. Imagine Japan as a guy standing way on the other side of the room, watching all of this very carefully. He's a new player and no one's sure what he's up to, but he beat Russia to a pulp in 1905. Russia has something to prove. So in the real world, Russia ordered mobilization of its army. So where were we? Russia suggests Austria should leave its little brother alone. Austria inquires as to whose army will assist Russia in doing so. The French army. That's who would assist Russia. France had been whispering encouragement to Russia since the very start of this crisis. The mere idea of France getting involved made Germany put down its glass and clench its fists. Germany hated France. It had been planning a war with France for years and now seemed as good a time as any to get things started. 
Germany appeals to Britain that France has been looking at it and that it is sufficiently out of order that Britain not intervene. Britain replies that France can look at who it wants to, that Britain is looking at Germany too, and what is Germany going to do about it? Britain and France ask Germany whether it's looking at Belgium. This is the point where everyone stands up, chairs are pushed back, voices are raised, and everyone not immediately involved suddenly needs to go to the bathroom. I imagine Sweden and Denmark deciding that really they should be getting home. They've got work in the morning and the wife will be wondering where they are. The door slams shut behind them. The country that most wanted to slip away but found itself surrounded by enormous shouting men was Belgium. Now, why was that? It comes down to how Germany decided it needed to fight this war. Germany's central military problem was that it would have to fight both France and Russia. Because remember, France and Russia are allies. Russia goes to war, France goes to war. That's how the alliance worked. Now, fighting two guys at once is risky business and Germany wanted to avoid it. Germany reasoned that Russia would need significantly more time to be ready to fight than France. Russia was huge and slow. It would take weeks, Germany reasoned, to get Russian troops to full force. France was another matter. France would be ready to fight pretty much immediately. So Germany decided to put Russia on hold. A small German force could maintain the Russian border while Germany swept in and defeated France in one massive assault. With France out of the way, German troops could make their way east and finish up the Russians in their own sweet time. However, a knockout blow against France would not be possible, Germany realized, if German troops had to attack across the shared French-German border. France had built a line of fortresses to stop just that sort of thing from happening, and it would take weeks to knock them out. No, Germany needed to attack where France was not well defended. And that brings us to Belgium. Belgium shared one border with Germany and another with France, with Luxembourg kind of tucked into the corner. Belgium was neutral, defiantly, proudly neutral, and everyone in Europe had sworn to keep it that way. Belgium's most passionate defender was Great Britain. Britain really cared about protecting Belgian neutrality and about the only thing that was sure to get Britain into a European war was a deliberate violation of that neutrality. So what does Germany do next? Germany rolls up its sleeves, looks at France, and punches Belgium. Germany was all about efficiency. It didn't waste time by mobilizing its armies and then waiting around until some future date to actually start the war. Why give your enemy the chance to prepare? No, Germany just did it. They marched into Luxembourg and Belgium, declared war on France and Russia. Boom, it was on. France and Britain punch Germany. Austria punches Russia. Germany punches Britain and France with one hand and Russia with another. For a solid month, Germany steamrolled through Belgium and northern France. German forces reached the outer suburbs of Paris before the combined French and British troops figured out how to stop them. The way to stop them was trench warfare, digging in and using machine guns, barbed wire, and heavy artillery to hold back the enemy. 
Before long, massive networks of trenches stretched from the English Channel to the Alps, with only shell holes and desolation in between. The line established in the autumn of 1914 barely moved for four years. Enormous battles at the Somme and Verdun killed millions while barely any ground changed hands. On the Eastern Front, the situation was more fluid. Russia had surprised everyone by getting troops into the field much sooner than anyone had anticipated. The German advanced and seized Russian territory, but then the Russians threw them back and seized German territory. This happened over and over. Meanwhile, Russia attacked Austria-Hungary further south. Fighting was really ugly there, with the poorly led, badly trained, undersupplied armies wailing away at each other like two old drunk guys. Japan calls from the other side of the room that it's on Britain's side, but stays there. Italy surprises everyone by punching Austria. Japan did, in fact, join the Allies, but limited itself to seizing a German colony in China. Japan's involvement is a good reminder that the Great War was, in fact, a world war, if not on the same scale as the Second World War. Battles took place off the coast of South America, across the Middle East, and in Central Africa. The Ottoman Empire joined the war on the side of the Central Powers, but as it was in even worse shape than Austria-Hungary, it was demolished by Britain and British-backed Arab rebellions. Meanwhile, Italy had been allied with Germany and Austria before the war, but it stayed out of the fighting for the first few months. Then it joined the conflict on the side of the Triple Entente, betraying its former friends and attacking Austria. America waits till Germany is about to fall over from sustained punching from Britain and France, then walks over and smashes it with a bar stool. Yeah, so what's the deal with the United States? The U.S. liked to pretend it wasn't even at this bar. It usually sat alone at the end of the counter, sipping a Sam Adams and writing in its journal. Sometimes it got up and harassed some of the Latin American countries who were trying to mind their own business in a totally different room. But most of the time, it just ignored everyone else. The U.S. remained neutral for the first several years of the war, although not as neutral as it liked to claim. U.S. policy favored the Allies, which caused enormous resentment in Germany and Austria. As well as providing huge loans to Britain, France, and Russia, the U.S. tacitly approved Britain's naval blockade of the Central Powers. The British Navy halted shipping from the Americas into Central Europe. Military supplies were blocked, of course, but so were food supplies. Soon the Central Powers were reliant on what food they could grow themselves, and it wasn't enough for their populations. Food prices doubled by 1916, and by the summer of 1917, food consumption in Germany was down to about 1,000 calories a day. Germany's only military recourse to the blockade was its submarine fleet, so it began sinking ships on their way to the UK. This infuriated the United States in general, and President Woodrow Wilson in particular. Wilson railed at Germany's immoral and illegal attacks on neutral ships. Submarines were a shocking new technology, and yes, they did violate international law, But Germany pointed out that Britain was also breaking international law with its blockade, and didn't Germany have a right to defend itself? 
Nevertheless, the sinking of the British passenger liner RMS Lusitania on April 22, 1915, with 128 Americans on board, so inflamed American opinion that German submarines stopped unrestricted submarine warfare. The ban lasted nearly two years, but by February 1917, conditions in Germany were so bad that the military decided to target all ships, including those of neutral nations. Submarines sank five American merchant ships by the end of March. Then Germany created another crisis. On January 16, 1917, the German foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, sent a secret telegram to Mexico, inviting the country to join the Central Powers in a war against the United States. The idea was to recruit a new ally that would stir up trouble on the U.S.-Mexico border and distract America so much it wouldn't enter the war in Europe. Zimmerman promised to support Mexico with guns and cash, and when the war was over, Mexico would get back all of the territory annexed by the U.S. in 1848 after the Mexican-American War. So, California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and big parts of New Mexico and Colorado would return to Mexico. Just like that. Easy peasy, right? Mexico was in the middle of a long, bloody civil war, and some within the country were happy to receive German help. But even the most anti-Yankee Mexicans looked at the German proposal and said, yeah, right. That would likely have been the end of it, except for one thing Germany didn't know. Britain was reading all of Germany's international telegrams and had been for years. For the British codebreakers, the Zimmerman telegram was like, Christmas. They had been handed the most amazing gift from the Germans, the cause that was guaranteed to bring the United States into war. Britain had to engage in a tricky bit of sleight of hand to make sure Germany wouldn't figure out its codes had been compromised. And you should really go read the whole story of the Zimmerman telegram because it's a great story. But in short order, Britain was able to pass on the telegram to the United States. The U.S. was incandescent, and public opinion swung 180 degrees. Previously, America had been determined to stay out of the war, and Wilson won the 1916 election by promising to keep American troops out of Europe. But now the public almost universally backed Wilson when he asked Congress for a formal declaration of war on April 2, 1917. The United States threw itself into the business of building an army that could take on the Germans. The entire U.S. Army consisted of 130,000 men in 1917. Ultimately, 4 million would be in uniform by the end of 1918. It would take months to call up these troops, train them, and get them to France. But by the summer of 1918, thousands upon thousands of American doughboys were arriving in France every month. By the time they arrived, Russia was already out of the war. I'm going to discuss the Russian Revolution in detail in a few weeks. But for now, just imagine Russia lying in a corner of the bar with a severe concussion. Austria-Hungary was bleeding and broken and only standing because it was leaning on Germany. Germany was in serious trouble. So, too, were France and Britain. But they could see America, young fresh America sprinting from its corner of the bar. The infusion of fresh American troops was exactly what was needed to push the Allies to victory. 
Ultimately, Germany lost because it had exhausted its resources. It was low on weapons, on gear, on food, but most critically, it had no more able-bodied men to recruit as soldiers. When the French or British lost men, fresh Americans were ready to take their places. But every German soldier lost diminished the fighting capacity of the Central Powers forever. At the end, the German generals had no choice but to beg for peace. By now, all of the chairs are broken and the big mirror over the bar is shattered. Britain, France, and America agree that Germany threw the first punch, so the whole thing is Germany's fault. While Germany is unconscious, they go through its pockets, steal its wallet, and buy drinks for all of their friends. And that's the bar fight. Pretty darn apt, I think. The bit about everyone deciding that the whole thing was Germany's fault is important because that's exactly what happened. Over the course of the war, each side constructed a narrative about the origins of the war. In the French, British, and American narrative, Germany was an uncivilized bully determined to conquer the world. In this narrative, Germany's only motive was raw aggression. France and Britain had no choice but to defend themselves against Germany's terrifying onslaught. The Germans, naturally, didn't see it that way. In the German narrative of the war, France, Britain, and Russia were the bullies. They were determined to shackle Germany, to encircle it and keep it down. Germany was a victim not a bully, and a victim determined to rise up and defend itself. All of Germany's actions, including invading neutral Belgium, had been necessary acts of self-defense. These narratives were repeated so often and reinforced by so much propaganda that it became impossible for one side to see any truth in the narrative of the other. There would be serious consequences for this down the road. So let's return to the original question. All metaphors of bar fights aside, what caused World War I? Was it the fault of the alliances, which triggered a chain reaction? Yeah, but it's not that simple. Each of the warring nations made a choice to enter the war and could have backed off. Was it because the European powers believed war was inevitable and so made it happen? Yeah, but the inevitability theory removes agency and responsibility from the actors in this drama. Russia decided to mobilize. Germany decided to invade Belgium. They weren't swept away in a flood. Was it Austria's fault for issuing that impossible ultimatum? Germany's for allowing Austria to overreact. Russia's for overreacting itself. Yes, yes, and yes. But France also bears responsibility for whispering encouragement in Russia's ear. And France acted all along on the assurance that Britain would back it up. The respected British military historian John Keegan summed up the outbreak of the war like this, quote, The First World War was a tragic and unnecessary conflict. Unnecessary because the train of events that led to its outbreak might have been broken at any point during the five weeks of crisis that preceded the first clash of arms had prudence or goodwill found a voice. I think that's why the bar fight analogy really works. These countries weren't acting like responsible nations that held in their hands the fates of millions of their subjects and citizens. 
they were acting like dudes at a bar, more concerned with honor and appearances and the fear of looking weak. They didn't care about the consequences to ordinary people. They really thought that war wouldn't be that bad. I mean, yeah, people would die, but just a few of them, right? The mental picture that most people, including most generals, had of war dated back to the Napoleonic era. They pictured the glories of cavalry charges. You try a cavalry charge against a machine gun. They did in the first weeks of the war, and then they realized how wrong they had been. In my opinion, the widespread pro-war attitude has to bear some responsibility here. And this is the part of the episode where we get serious again. I told you earlier in the episode that most people believed war was a good thing, a noble thing. Just to reinforce that, I want to go back to the young adult book that I talked about in episode one, the 1921 Canadian novel Rilla of Ingleside. Rilla, our teenage protagonist, is asked early in the war to give recruiting speeches to drum up enlistment in the Canadian Army. As best I can tell, Rilla's speeches were pretty typical of their kind, although she was very good at giving them. Here's a quote. And she was so earnest and appealing and shining-eyed. More than one recruit joined up because Rilla's eyes seemed to look right at him when she passionately demanded how could men die better than fighting for the ashes of their fathers and the temples of their gods, or assured her audience with thrilling intensity that one crowded hour of glorious life was worth an age without a name. This is how people really talked about war in 1914. But I don't think even Rilla would have given this kind of speech by the end of the war. I suspect she would say she'd rather have her brother alive than know he lived one crowded hour of glory at Vimy Ridge, where he died. It didn't take long for voices from the front to expose the hollowness of this sentiment. Take the famous poem of Wilfred Owen, a remarkable British poet, killed one week, oh, just one week before the armistice in November 1918. The title of the poem is Dulce et Decorum Est, which is a quote from the Roman poet Horace. Owen quotes the entire line from Horace at the end of the poem, and it translates to, It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Owen exposes the absurdity, even the obscenity, of that mindset. In the poem, Owen describes marching along during a poison gas attack. One of the men in his unit fails to get his mask on in time. Here's what he says next. If in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. That's British actor Christopher Eccleston reading the poem for the BBC. For the entire work, visit the podcast Facebook page or the website. I've got a link to the whole video. 
I want to share one more poem with you. It's a very, very short one by Richard Kipling, of all people. Kipling is little remembered now, but he was once what you call a big deal. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907. He was gung-ho about the Great War and wrote appalling anti-German propaganda that called the Germans beasts and infectious microbes. But then Kipling's beloved son Jack was declared missing, presumed dead, in September 1915 during fighting on the Western Front. Kipling never really recovered. In 1919, he published a collection of poems called Epitaphs for the Dead. It includes this two-line poem. If any question why we died, tell them, because our fathers lied. If you need a 12-word explanation for the origins of World War I, I think you could do a lot worse than Kipling's indictment. Well, now that you're all thoroughly depressed, I'm going to leave you here. Next week, we're going to have our second regular episode. It will pick up in November 1918 with the end of the war and discuss Woodrow Wilson and his plans for the League of Nations. If you're enjoying the year that was, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Tell your friends, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast apps. If you've got questions or opinions, go to theyearthatwaspodcast.com or visit the Facebook page. And check out the website, too. It's got maps and photos of key players and some propaganda posters. You'll also find the complete text of Wilfred Owen's poem and some links to other amazing World War I poetry. Thanks for listening. My name is Elizabeth Linde, and this is The Year That Was, 1919.